I went and drove the length of the proposed pipeline route in 2012. And at the time I wanted to hurry up because I thought, oh my gosh, they're gonna reach a decision. This whole trip will be a waste. And uh, you know, here we are eight years later and it's still up in the air. It's been a big week for the American environmental movement. Three major pipeline projects were defeated in a series of business and legal decisions. This comes despite President Trump's efforts to ease environmental regulations and remove barriers to fossil fuel production. Meanwhile, the Biden-Sanders task force has released its roadmap on combating the climate crisis, which calls for immediate action to reverse the Trump administration's rollbacks of key environmental protections. I speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Stephen Mufson about pipelines, regulations, activism, and politics on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. My Democrat and Republican co-hosts Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton are out this week, but if you're missing their banter, do not fret. I promise you they will be back soon. Now, it's been a busy week in the climate and energy world. First, a series of setbacks for Keystone XL, Dakota Access, and Atlantic Coast Pipelines, followed by the release of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force report that includes a suite of climate and energy policy recommendations. The political climate team will be digging into the plan over the next few days, and we'll be sure to cover it more in upcoming episodes. In the meantime, I want to flag a few highlights that are relevant to today's show. First, as a reminder, the Unity Task Force was created in May, with a mission to bring together Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders supporters in the lead-up to the November election. Authors of the Climate Roadmap include former Secretary of State John Kerry, who we recently had on this podcast as well as Representative Kathy Castor of Florida, who has also been on the show. And representing the more progressive wing were Varshini Prakash of the Sunrise Movement, another past podcast guest, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who we've still yet to have on. In terms of key takeaways, first, the Biden-Sanders task force calls for net zero greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. as soon as possible or no later than 2050. It also calls for 100% clean electricity by 2035, 100% clean new buildings by 2030, and setting strong standards for clean vehicles as soon as possible. Another major takeaway is that Democrats have committed to early and ongoing consultation with tribes to mitigate concerns regarding major infrastructure projects such as oil pipelines. The Unity Task Force on Climate Change also called for, quote, immediate action to reverse the Trump administration's dangerous and destructive rollbacks of critical environmental and climate protections. That last part is particularly relevant to this week's show, in light of recent pipeline project setbacks. To walk us through the latest news, I'll be joined in a moment by Stephen Mufson, an incredibly accomplished reporter covering the business of climate change for The Washington Post. The Biden-Sanders climate plan was released shortly after we spoke, so we don't address it specifically, but you'll find the conversation is still very timely and points to important trends in climate and energy policy. Since joining the Post in 1989, Steve has covered economic policy, China, diplomacy, energy, and the White House. Previously, he spent six years working for the Wall Street Journal in New York, London, and Johannesburg. And in 2020, he shared the Pulitzer Prize for the climate change series, Two Degrees Celsius Beyond the Limit. 
He's also published the books Fighting Years, Black Resistance, and the Struggle for a New South Africa, and Keystone XL Down the Line. The latter of which, of course, makes Steve an expert on today's discussion topic. Here's our conversation. Steve, welcome to Political Climate. Thank you for fitting this into your busy schedule. Glad to be here. So let's cut right to the news. You reported in the Washington Post this week that three multi-billion dollar oil and gas pipeline projects were recently dealt major setbacks, undermining President Trump's three and a half year effort to expand oil and gas development in the United States. So to start us off, can you briefly outline the three decisions that came in recent days? Uh, Sure. Well, the most surprising one was a decision by the D.C. District Court judge to order Dakota Access to stop sending oil down this pipeline. The pipeline has already been functioning for a couple of years. And now the the judge said because the company had not, actually because the Army Corps had not filed the correct environmental impact statement, that the judge was ordering that the pipeline be emptied. So that was that was a, a big setback, and it's going to uh, cause a frenzy of court activity to try to get that that order uh, stayed. Another big one was the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, a project that the companies have already spent uh, a lot of money on. The two the two partners being Dominion Energy and Duke Energy, uh, and they decided that it wasn't worth it. That Uh, to continue uh, with the project would cost so much more than they've spent already. And uh, one of the companies sold its interest to uh, Berkshire Hathaway, actually, and uh, just said that they'd had enough. Meanwhile, Keystone XL is is still fighting things out in court to try to get all the rights it needs in order to complete its pipeline that would go from the Alberta tar sands down to Port Arthur. Right. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court handed another setback to Keystone XL just this week by holding up an April decision by a federal judge in Montana that blocked a key environmental permit for the project. Now, I want to dial in on that Atlantic Coast Pipeline project first. That decision came on Sunday, and it was interesting because it was a business decision, although influenced by a lot of factors, including activism. I guess, did that signal anything unique in your view that companies themselves, without any court decision, were walking away from a project? Yeah, I think it's a bit, it's a bit different. Um, I think that um, that project was seen as very important on a lot of levels. Uh, one level being that it was going to uh, take some of the natural gas from the huge shale fields in in uh, Pennsylvania and bring them down uh, down the East Coast to places like North Carolina. So it seemed to make a lot of sense, uh, but the company said that really it was uh, uncertainty about uh, about the legal status of the project that made them pull back. Interesting. So I guess, who would you say are the victors here? And what has their response been to the news? Yeah, well, who, whether you're a victor or, or a villain depends on where you sit. I mean, the energy secretary blamed uh, the uh, environmental groups for stopping the project. And uh, Bill McKibben uh, tweeted, congratulations to all those, those environmental groups that that uh, held things up in court. 
you know, if there were a Biden administration, obviously that would have changed the calculus in a way that would make it unlikely that they would ever be able to build that pipeline in any case. Which pipeline is that? And any of them? This is the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Got it. But yes, I mean, the you know, the question, you know, I mean, all this fits in a broader context of uh, the environment. A lot of environmentalists have shifted toward trying to stop pipeline projects. The idea being that this way we would leave natural gas and, and oil in the ground and uh, that the pipelines, even though they were kind of middlemen in these transactions between producers and consumers who had you know, usually gotten all the attention, environmental groups in recent years have, have tried to, using the court system, try to stop the pipeline construction and force companies to leave these resources in the ground. So does it work that way, do you think, as far as you understand it? If you block a pipeline, does that correlate to reduced emissions? Obviously, it's a way of moving oil and gas around, but the demand would still be there, right? So what is your understanding of how this plays out in terms of the climate fight? Great question, because uh, (laughs) it's possible that it has little effect on the amount of oil coming to market. The Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, was carrying around half a million barrels a day. And that oil, uh, if it's going to make it to market, needs to find another route. The most likely route would be railroads. And uh, that's not too hard at the moment because a lot of companies have shut in production because of price. And production in North Dakota, which is where a lot of this Dakota Access from pretty much all the oil from the Dakota Access pipelines coming from, that that oil, uh, that production in North Dakota has been cut back by at least three, four, five hundred thousand barrels a day. So getting it to market might not be that difficult. If you do use some of these other ways, though, like railroads, that increases the price of transportation. And, you know, basic supply and demand will say that if the prices are higher, then demand will be somewhat lower. But it's not as though that whole half million barrels a day is going to be left in the ground. Got it. So I guess the fact that oil production is down right now amid the coronavirus pandemic and the economic contraction means that the oil that is being produced will likely find its way to market because there's less competition for transportation. And then there's the matter of, of long-term demand and what that means for the keep it in the ground movement overall. Also, we should note that there are some safety issues with pipelines and railroads, but in particular, there was an incident in Canada, where I'm from, uh, with railroads moving around fossil fuels that was particularly disastrous. So just in the theme of every decision kind of has another impact uh, that we have to consider. Absolutely. I mean, we have pipeline leaks and we have pipeline explosions, but we have rail accidents. That one in Canada was particularly horrific. But there were, you know, there have been some others in uh, the Upper Great Plains, and some of these trains run through through to to refineries, such as one that's in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of anxiety about that kind of that kind of situation as well. Mm. So I guess, what do you think this says about the effectiveness of activism? today? Or at least what does it say about the strategy? I know you kind of touched on it, but just to tease that out further, what is emerging here in the activism uh, space? Well, I think the environmental movement is using the court system very effectively. 
even though President Trump has tried to roll back a lot of uh, environmental regulations, there are still a lot of them out there and that are functioning. I think that's one of the lessons of these pipeline decisions. And I think that uh, the environmental movement is also uh, taking a harder look and, and pushing harder against financial institutions and investors who are bringing a lot of these projects to market. So one of the first places they've had success has been in the Arctic. And a lot of investment banks and commercial banks have said five of the six biggest American commercial banks have said they would not finance projects in the Arctic. Now, some of them might not have been financing projects in the Arctic anyway. And uh, given the price of oil, a lot of those projects might not seem very viable. But uh, there is some headway, I think, being made here by environmentalists. And we'll just have to see how it goes. But I think there's a big push to try to get big financial institutions to stop lending and to get big money managers to stop investing. It does seem as though that approach has been effective with, you know, big European banks and financial institutions in particular, you know, moving away from fossil fuel investments. Obviously, BlackRock had their letter talking about accounting for climate impacts, which was, uh, you know, really moved the media world, if nothing else, and it seems to have impacted the financial sector. So curious to see how that's going to evolve. Yeah, I'm a little bit cautious about the BlackRock letter because I I think that there, there's another, you have, we just need to be cautious about to what extent this is uh, a lot of talk. Um, he sounds convincing, and we'll just have to see how that plays out. Right. And he being Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. I think one place where you can see the impact soonest is in the coal business. The coal industry, no one wants to invest in it for financial reasons. I mean, it's a sort of a combination of financial reasons plus environmental reasons. It's the worst, one of the worst, if not the worst thing out there on the environmental front. And uh, the companies aren't making money. So Uh, You see a lot of, if you analyze some of these coal companies, it looks like they are basically slowly liquidating. They're paying out dividends. They're not really investing their cash flow. And, you know, they're not getting much in. They've all been through bankruptcy at least once. So, you know, that's, I think, what the end might look like if if the environmental movement uh, succeeds. So do you think this also applies to oil and gas or this is just about coal specifically? Well, oil and gas companies could last darn near forever in some ways. But, you know, if you look at a company like ExxonMobil, it really hasn't been a great stock. Uh, A few years ago, it started borrowing money in order to cover its dividend payments, which is also not a great thing. And it's uh, bought back a lot of its own shares, so uh, which has helped prop the price up. So, you know, without that, it might it might look even even worse. So you know it's not the coal industry by a long shot, but the the oil companies are very much thinking about how they're going to weather the next uh, thirty years while the rest of the world tries to get to zero emissions. A couple of big oil companies have vowed to do that already, although they haven't spelled out how that was going to happen. But you know that that'll be. Uh, a good story to watch, I think, to how that how it affects them and how they manage to deal with it. 
As a quick uh, side note here, hundreds of coal companies received around $170 million in U.S. virus aid, Bloomberg reported this week. So we are seeing the coal companies get some uh, policy support, and there still are hundreds of them, even though coal is in decline, as you noted. But I just checked today, and you know, coal is still 23% of our electricity mix here in the U.S. So it is not entirely gone yet. It is. Le- that's less than half of what it was when I started covering this subject, you know, uh, well, that's not when I started covering it, but <laughs> at one of the points I was covering it in the sort of the mid-aughts. So that's pretty impressive on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a climate expert, um, it's not fast enough. I mean, this is the problem with the whole climate issue is that uh, solutions or policies uh, lack the scale and speed that's necessary to slow climate change down enough to prevent some sort of, you know, some sort of real uh, disaster. And so you mentioned scale and speed going in the decarbonization direction. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has made it a cornerstone of its policy agenda to remove some of the regulations that would slow down oil and gas infrastructure projects and other mining projects that would you know, you know, increase emissions. So can you detail some of the recent uh, actions that, that the Trump administration has taken to actually uh, develop more fossil fuels in the country? Yeah, I think that the there are there are a couple of categories to keep in mind. One is the category of regulations that the president has trying to roll back. So that includes things like the clean power plan uh, that President Obama had promoted which was to reduce coal even faster among, uh, among the utilities. Uh, there are other things like uh, the Waters of the United States regulation, which was going to make it uh, less of a problem for companies to pollute some of the tributaries to, to our great rivers. So that's an important category. Things he has gone through, the, the, he has played by the book in order to roll these things back. But there's another category, which is the category of regulations that the administration has simply stopped enforcing vigorously. And now that's become much more explicit just recently as a result of the pandemic, where the administration has clearly come out and said, let's back off, let's not increase the burden on the economy during this time of the pandemic. Now, you know, whether or not environmental regulations cause a burden to the economy is something a lot of people will take issue with. And as well as, you know, whether or not it's within the power of the president to try to do something like that. So those are two major fronts that the administration is fighting on to try to make it easier for the fossil fuel industry. And I guess there could be arguably a third one, which is through the form of aid or stimulus, I would imagine, in, in legislation going forward. Are you, are you tracking that as well? Yes, uh, although I think it's, it's harder for, for that to have a meaningful impact, but um, definitely something we want to keep an eye on. I mean, we did write quite a bit about some of the independents that were looking for help during the uh, sharp downturn in oil prices. The independent oil and, and gas producers? Yes. I mean, they're independent, but they're quite large. You know, the Continental Resources, the Pioneer Resources. Those were some of the companies that were looking for help of one sort or another. Pioneer was trying to get the Texas Railroad Commission to shut in 
oil production, something that would have been the first time that the Railroad Commission had done that since the uh, 60s, really, or maybe a little bit in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to one environmental group, Climate Power 2020, their uh, their latest press release uh, documents around $8 billion in support for oil and gas uh, companies and the industry overall since the pandemic started earlier this year. So it's definitely becoming a fault line for, for future confrontation. Meanwhile, we should know Absolutely. that the clean energy industry is asking for support. $8 billion is, is, a, is a lot of $8 billion is a lot of money. I mean, you know, one must keep in perspective, you know, that a company like any one of the big majors, ExxonMobil, Chevron, they're spending twice, two, two to three times, well, and now maybe two times that amount every year just by themselves. So $8 billion is a lot of money, but in the oil industry, it's not as much money as it is in some other places. It's still something that's fueled a lot of debate and a lot of outrage that, you know, why, why should the taxpayer be bailing these companies out? They, they, the executives of these companies know that it's a risky business, these people say. I mean, this is the line of argument and that they should uh, suffer the consequences. And I think that's uh, really got a lot of people very upset when there are a lot of very needy people in line for that same money. To go back to the deregulation point, do you think that will be lasting in your experience? I mean, uh, the the Obama administration also used executive orders to advance a decarbonization uh, policy agenda, and some of that was rolled back by the Trump administration through other you know rules and regulations and executive orders. So is this just like going to swing back and forth, or are we seeing some fundamental shifts in U.S. policymaking right now? Well, we've we've seen some shifts, I think, um, but it's hard to say how lasting they'll be. I mean, just as it was hard, it, you know, it wasn't an ideal tool for President Obama either. He he turned to it when he realized he was never going to get something or certain types of legislation through the Senate. So it's it's not he he turned to it not because it was a great way to make policy, but because he was having trouble doing that some other way. President Trump, uh, you know, I think, especially in the early days, didn't really understand how uh, this all worked. And maybe he still doesn't understand. In his first week in office, he issued two executive orders designed to uh, get the construction projects on Dakota Access and Keystone started. He turned to the CEO of Keystone and said, so, you know, guy's going to be at work on Monday or something like that. And the chief executive said, well, you know, we still have to deal with some regulatory issues, the Nebraska Public Service Commission for one. And we have all the, you know, he he didn't spell them all out, but, you know, he he still had a long list of issues, eminent domain with ranchers and farmers um, and uh, some of the other courts. So, you know, the President Trump, clearly had no understanding of that. And here we are three and a half years later, and the Keystone still, amazingly enough, still hasn't gotten all the permits it needs. And uh, I don't think the president really had a firm grasp of that when he came to office. I'm not, you know, he hasn't said that much about it recently, but I, I think that's that's maybe frustrating for him. And it's just the reality of what the what you can do under under uh, our legal system and that it's effectively providing 
some protection to people who don't want that pipeline built. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you mention the local level actions, the state of Nebraska and, and lower level courts, because the Supreme Court upheld, you know, the, the Nebraska court decision, if I'm not mistaken. And there have been, again, farmer issues. So while this plays out a lot in the big macro political realm, it's interesting to see how much of the decision making seems to be happening at the local level. Yeah, as Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local, right? And, um, you know, this is this is one of those instances. I mean, they've made a lot of progress. They built a, you know, the pipeline, the southern half of the pipeline was built some time ago. They're really still talking about that northern part. And, you know, it's possible they might never get that thing done. The Keystone Pipeline, right. Yeah, that's been uh, been an issue I've been hearing about my whole professional career. And it's obviously a big issue in Canada. Yeah, I, I, I went and drove the length of the proposed pipeline route in 2012. And at the time, I wanted to hurry up because I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to reach a decision. This whole trip will be a waste. And, uh, you know, here we are eight years later, and it's still up in the air. You know, we, I drove from Edmonton to Port Arthur and did, uh, you know, about 10 or 12 stories on different different aspects, different issues. Eminent domain was one. Uh, there was trade. There was the uh, fights with Native American tribes whose burial grounds uh, were being affected. The why we wanted to get oil to the Gulf of Mexico in the first place to try to bring some of that very low quality crude, really bitumen from Canada to the refineries in the Gulf Coast that were able to handle them. There were a whole raft of of things. And, uh, you know, I just never would have guessed that we'd still be talking about this eight years later. And did these form the basis for your book? Yes, they did. And, and it went up to Fort, Fort McMurray and uh, saw the, it's really, you know, producing oil from the oil sands is really like strip mining. It's, and, and, uh, it's kind of a impressive, uh, site, not necessarily in a good way. Um, but it's, it's quite an operation up there. Yeah, that's uh, an issue I'd personally like to cover more. I sort of haven't as a Canadian sort of stepped in there. It's a very uh, controversial issue over the Thanksgiving table, even uh, where I'm from, because a lot of uh, cousins of mine would go do surveying up there in Fort McMurray. And, you know, it's just a jobs creator. I really see that. But of course, the oil sands are known to have terrible environmental consequences. So uh, you can't ignore that. Um, I want to turn in our last few minutes to that macro political level, though, and talk about the 2020 election here in the U.S. Um, how are you seeing these decisions play politically? Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who's the presumptive Democratic uh, nominee, likely blocking some of these projects. What is really the decision that, face, that, that voters are facing right now when it comes to the political aspects? Well, I think um, any Democrat is going to try to restrict emissions somehow. And uh, that's just not on the Republican agenda at all. I think that a lot of people thought that there might be a little bit of movement by uh, Republicans, especially House Republicans, who were members of a, a committee that the Speaker set up called the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Uh, but they've, uh, it, it seems, uh, you know, after several months that there probably isn't 
a major uh, shift coming from the Republicans, at least not right now. And so really, uh, voters who, who want to do something to restrict emissions have to look to the Democrats. And, you know, if you look to the Democrats, there is quite a lot of variety. And to some extent, you know, by choosing Biden, they've made their they've made uh, one choice already. Uh, Biden is probably relatively moderate, although even he uh, talks about trying to do something that would restrict output on federal lands, at least. I mean, this is kind of the, the spectrum, which is, do you stop exploration on federal lands alone? Do you try to stop all fracking, which is partly on federal lands and partly not? Are you a supporter of the Green New Deal, which has uh, an enormous number of uh, proposals, not all of them having to do with climate? And I think that's a pretty big range. And uh, we'll just have to see where it all settles out. But I think there'll be a lot of struggling within the, among the Democrats and then they'll have to try to to get that through Congress, whatever whatever that might look like. Yeah, I'm sure we'll all be watching that closely as reporters, especially as this Bernie Biden task force uh, comes out with their plan, which is expected this summer, uh, looking at uh, how they might you know come together on a climate platform. Uh, and the House Select Committee on yeah. the Climate Crisis has it'll, its own it'll plan. It'll be challenging. I mean, you know, the 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 Select Committee, the Democrats on the Select Committee did issue a plan just recently, and that's uh, a very interesting plan. It provides for a carbon tax for one thing. It extends tax credits for wind and solar. It restricts output on public lands and and, and a whole raft of other things to try to um, get at the fossil fuel business and to try to bring the United States in line with its obligations internationally to, to slash uh, emissions. It, it said that the, uh, among other things, it said that the U.S. economy should be net zero carbon emissions on carbon emissions, which is to say that whatever carbon emissions we do have in 2050 should be offset by things like uh, direct air capture, and that the utilities should be net, net zero emitters by, I think it was uh, 2040, and that all cars should, all new cars should be electric vehicles by 2035. So it's, it's quite an ambitious uh, list of proposals. Uh, it was a, about a 500 page report. So there was more in there mm-hmm. that I, I'm sure you read all of it time <laughs> to go over, but uh, it is, it is uh, uh, ambitious to say the least. I mean, on the oil and gas front, my understanding from reading other commentators' uh, comments on it was that it didn't it, it didn't address oil and gas output in a very pointed way. It set a lot of targets, and there was, I believe, some there was some discussion around methane emissions. But I think some of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party wanted some more more yeah they wanted more yeah. phase outs for for oil and gas and things like that, which, as you said, will be Absolutely. the front line here. And so, just to just to close us out, what is next for these three pipelines? projects. Obviously, this is big news. And it, it is a win for the environmental movement, for sure. But it's not over. So what do you think you're going to look out for going forward? Um, I think that, uh, you know, a lot is still in the hands of the courts. So, you know, I think for environmentalists, it was a good couple of weeks or a good week. But, um, you know, they might still get suffer reversals in those areas. And uh, so that's one thing to look for. And I think beyond that, I think 
really we need to look toward companies and whether or not companies, uh, this is one reason I've taken this uh, job that I have um, at the moment, which is uh, how companies respond and whether they go beyond what the law requires. And I think we see that in some companies. Some of it's just hot air, you know, but, but a lot of it isn't. And I think we may be at a transition point for companies that are emitters and uh, maybe trying to do something to change that. I'm sure you're meaning companies from the big tech ones to investors. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think the big tech companies have uh, been asking utilities or really telling the utilities that they won't put you know, uh, plants in their districts unless they uh, can provide emissions-free power, really wind and solar. And, um, and so the tech has been out in front, but now you see other companies that are also coming around, financial firms, and, you know, even uh, the oil and gas industry. And BP has said it was going to be uh, net zero on carbon emissions by 2050, which is, uh, you know, I just really not sure how they're going to do that. And they said they're going to spell out, spell that out a bit more, perhaps in a investors meeting in September. And uh, I think that'll be something really interesting to watch. I mean, and I think that we see other movement too. Companies that produce agricultural goods, especially in developing countries, but also here in the United States, uh, might try to find ways to do that that are less destructive. A lot of deforestation goes on that could be curtailed. And there are farming techniques that uh, are also better from an emissions point of view. So Lots of things happening at the corporate level. Again, you know, if this were kind of a normal, you know, what we used to think of as normal, uh, all this would be, you know, fascinating and and technologically interesting. Uh, but in, instead, it's it's also sort of climactically frightening because, again, assuming that uh, climate scientists are correct, that the that a lot needs to be done really almost immediately certainly in the next 10 years or so. And, you know, we've polled Americans at the Post and a lot of them share that sense of urgency. There's a, one of the the biggest changes in that survey was the percentage of people who felt that action needed to be taken urgently, which means, you know, in the next two to 10 years. Right, which is why so much of this does come down to politics uh, in a lot of ways in this particular juncture. So we will definitely be looking for your reporting, Steve, uh, going forward in the Washington Post. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Steve and I spoke shortly before the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force plan was released. That plan, published Wednesday, does not mention the Green New Deal, nor does it explicitly limit fossil fuel production. While Democrats are likely to be way more active on environmental regulation, first, they've got to win an election. And with that, we'll end this show. Thank you for listening. And if you have a moment, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Let me know what you thought of this interview and what you want to see more of going forward as we approach November. Thanks again. Until soon.